Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Before we get started with today's episode, we wanna let our listeners know that we will be talking about trauma in the responder community with very brief mentioning of suicide. So listener discretion is advised. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Danita Ball and Gus Hanke about the importance of responder mental health and well-being. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Danita and Gus about the resources that responders will need moving forward. Co-hosting the podcast with me today is a past guest of the podcast, Roy Bethke. Mental health issues are obviously very uncomfortable to talk about, especially in relation to work. But with over 200 suicides in the profession in the last year, um, mental wellness of police is a big concern and something that we should be talking about more. So why do you think is there such a negative stigma associated with seeking mental health treatment by law enforcement officers and deputies? We look at it in a negative way because it shows that it's a sign of or appears to be a sign of weaknesses a weakness when actually it's a sign of strength to ask for help. It's easy to walk around and seem like everything is okay when inside you are hurting. So what we need to do is to destigmatize the fact that somebody is hurting, somebody needs help. And um, that's what... um, a lot of the agencies are trying to do with their wellness program or just having to focus on wellness because we're seeing right now that we're losing a lot of our law enforcement officers because of the stress. They're not getting the help that they need. And so when we move that or remove that stigma, then they will start getting that help because instead of me saying, oh, look at him. He can't even handle it. You know, he carry a badge and a gun and, you know, look at him. He's weeping like a baby. When we stop doing that and and start putting our arms around that person and say, hey, what can I do to help you? Um, Did you um, go to the EAP, the Employee Assistance Program? Did you go to a police officer support team? Hey, I'll go with you. What kind of do talk to me? So when we start embracing the fact that people will go through things, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and people just internalize it differently. But when we start making it okay to get help, to seek help, then we'll destigmatize um, mental health. Well, Danita is exactly correct. The Part of the problem is it's perceived weakness. That's been a problem with our profession for a long time. You're talking about a bunch of type A personalities, macho men and women that uh, just like she mentioned, you know, what's wrong with so-and-so? They can't hack it or they can't handle it. And uh, we we don't do a very good job of uh, fostering 
helping each other either. Uh, and I think a lot of the fear from a lot of the guys and gals that have issues is they're afraid that it's going to be weaponized against them and it's going to become the basis for, for somebody to uh, run them off, get rid of them, or, or what have you. It, it's really something that's been lacking. I mean, we're coming around more and more. We're doing better, but still more needs to be done. And so sort of going off of what you're saying, Gus, it's one thing to say that we will place more focus on mental health and wellness in police departments, but actually taking steps to implement change can obviously be be very challenging with changing a culture. What do you think are some of the, you know, practical steps involved in destigmatizing mental health issues and seeking help for those issues in departments? Well, the practical steps are, first, the leadership has to recognize the need and understand the, the necessity for programs of making avenues available for people who are having issues and, and problems and not to be judgmental and not to, for the lack of a better word, just because the mindset is that it's perceived weakness automatically a lot of times you can have a group mentality where people just get a stereotypical view of someone that has some of these issues as being weak. And then, you know, a pack mentality can take over and you get, get three or four people on another employee and it it can cause problems. So that you have to have strong leadership that's willing to create avenues, but not only once they create the avenue, support programs and stand up for those who are involved in the programs uh, to ensure that they're protected. I think it starts with education and making people aware that um, mental health is an illness, but it's uh, most cases it's something that is treatable. Some of the problems that people have with mental health, health is a accumulation of things that are going on. And so what uh, we need to do is make sure that they have the help that they need. And so when, when I say education and awareness, I'm talking about in the academy, when they first come aboard, we uh, start indoctrinating in them the fact that this is not a sign of weakness. If you need help, ask someone and also bring their family members in and discuss it with their family members and talk about, hey, if Danita starts uh, exhibiting these factors or doing this and that, uh, you may want to suggest that she gets some help. Just make them aware so that they can advocate for their loved one, not to wait, not to wait until they are all the way down the rabbit hole, but um, also the training. We need to make sure that we are reinforcing this in our training, in our in-service training that we have on a yearly basis. And I'm just not saying we do it once a year, but we have it on a yearly basis. So we need to take the opportunity to reinforce the training that uh, we have been given them in the past, as well as talk about any new training. And also when we are engaging the public, there's some crisis intervention training. And so we wanna make sure that we send our people to that training if at all possible. And the resources, we wanna make sure 
that they have resources in place so that they can get the help. It's not enough to say, hey, you need to go and get some help or, um, you know, I know you're going through this, but um, go and get some help. Okay, where do I go? Make sure that they understand where those resources are. If it's, uh, again, our um, employee assistance program, our peer support team, if it's one of our chaplains, or if it's just a um, co-worker that is sympathetic to them, they feel that they can talk to, let's make sure that we invest in them. We have already invested in them because we sent them through the academy. Let's just make sure that they continue to be a high performing um, officer or deputy that we hired them to be. So Danita, you mentioned uh, starting this training and these conversations all the way at the academy level and, and supporting uh, officers and deputies throughout their career. There's certainly a, a lot of research about cumulative PTS. Uh, and, and I think I think you both kind of mentioned, we need to normalize the fact that this is a really, really difficult uh, profession and uh, serving and seeing the things that our officers see is pretty challenging. For our listeners, there's a great resource, a book uh, called The Body Keeps the Score by Basil Vanderkolk that I would very highly recommend uh, those in the law enforcement profession read. And then um, Gus, you specifically mentioned the need for leadership um, to embrace this culture change. What about when we reach the point where people in the agency aren't supportive of these voluntary programs? I know that in the past when I uh, was a deputy police chief, we had critical incidents, we would bring in uh, teams and offer voluntary help and, and people wouldn't take advantage of it. So how do we, we get the culture and maybe get informal leaders uh, to have more of an impact to get these resources and to use the resources that are available? I think that's a great point. In any organization, typically there are people who are, as you mentioned, some of the informal leaders, the people that are the buffer between the people in the in the top of the the hierarchy and, and people who fill in the gaps that are able to bridge uh, between the subordinates and supervisors. And really when you try to affect some type of culture change, those are the people that the buy-in the buy-in is most important with because those informal leaders are typically well respected by both the administration and the, the people that they serve with. And we have several employees in our organization that are those guys and girls who they're an informal leader. They may not carry a title. They may not, but they're very well respected by their peers. And those type of people have a lot of influence in the organization. And those are the people that can help you when you're talking about culture change you're, you're talking about a mindset typically that you've got to overcome. And when it's been a, a standard thought process through an agency or an organization for years and years and years, those things can be difficult and those people can help bridge the gap, in my opinion. So Danita, same question for you, both from a perspective with your experience at Milwaukee, a, a big city police department and at a county sheriff's department that's one of the larger ones in the country. I agree with uh, Gus when uh, he stated that it has, if there's going to be a culture change, it has to start with leadership. Leadership has to support it. 
And then um, another tool that we have is that informal leader that you uh, referred to and as Gus alluded to and stated that they are res usually respected by you know, those in administration as well as the line officers or deputies who are doing the position or doing the job. And so if we can get buy-in from them, then it's going to help whatever we're trying to change. It's going to make it a lot easier because when he or she is uh, talking about what management has just stated that they want to implement, and then, then you're getting pushback. He said, well, or she, he or she can say, well, but did you look at it this way? Or did you look at it that way? And then it would be easier coming from their peer when they explain it, because now it doesn't seem like management is uh, trying to force it down my throat. And now we have to do this when it's something that the majority of the people don't support. And so the informal leader can lobby on behalf of what is right. And so they are not just going to support something just because management asked them about it. Uh, I would hope that the leadership would go to that person first and say, this is what we're trying to implement. What do you think? Because that person has a pulse on the agency, what others are thinking, because they will go to uh, him or her before they will come to leadership. And so before anything is implemented, any of those um, obstacles or challenges, they could be addressed ahead of time. So that a formal leader is very important. And as uh, Gus stated, uh, he or she is uh, standing in the gap and they are the one that can, you know, talk to the uh, deputy or the officer and say, hey, can you um, just uh, look at it this way? Or did you ever think about this? Or, you know, give a different perspective, actually a perspective from the person who's actually going to do the job. Because oftentimes they say management is always changing things, but they never ask the ones that is actually going to do the job or have to implement it. And so that informal leader is generally on, on the line, one of the line officers or deputies, and so they know how it's going to affect them, and then they can talk about it in that respect. So along those lines, one of our previous podcast guests mentioned the importance of sharing success stories when an officer does uh, reach out and ask for some help with their mental well-being. Do you believe that from a leadership perspective, sharing those success stories provides value? Yes, I do. Um, you know, the old, the old adage, don't uh, judge until you've walked a mile in somebody else's shoes. You may be okay tomorrow, uh, today, but tomorrow you may be dealing with some type of problem. Uh, I've seen a lot of judgmental people that ended up in the same type of circumstances that they were really quick to, to cast judgment on people. And I think that it's important for everybody to understand you could be involved in a uh, an extremely traumatic incident tomorrow that will forever impact your life uh, in a in a life-changing manner for the rest of your life. And there are friends of mine that have been involved in some some very bad situations. You uh, you mentioned some things earlier. There are a lot of difficult uh, situations people 
uh, in this job are exposed to and things that they see. And, and it, it's important for someone to see someone who's faced some adversity and they've fought that adversity and, and they've triumphed over it. And it is possible. But uh, the, la the last thing we want to see is, is, is are the things that we're seeing now with so many officers uh, feeling hopeless or feeling like they're going to be they're going to be judged or they're going to be seen as a as somebody that's a weak person or whatever. And, and unfortunately, a lot of these guys and girls end up taking their lives. And it's really shameful that we don't do more. Um, and, you know, if you're ever involved in a situation where somebody you know or love uh, commits suicide, it's a horrible situation and you carry a lot of guilt with you. Uh, so especially if you're a person that's supposed to be trained to recognize some of those types of things. So, like I said, have that compassion, have that heart, want to be um, that person that is willing to help people. That's why you signed up for this job in the first place. I think success stories helps to normalize uh, mental health. Um, and if a person sees that someone in leadership or just someone in general um, has struggled and come through it, it encourages them. And sometimes they will hear what the person was struggling with and say, oh, well, mine isn't so bad and they got through it. So I think um, it's a way to encourage people and let them know that they're not in this alone and that others have gone through meaning gone through, not stayed in the midst of, but gone through it and gotten through it. Thank you to Danita and Gus for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Thanks also to Roy for co-hosting this series with us and offering his insights as well. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Danita and Gus on the resources that responders will need moving forward from a crisis. Before we wrap up today, we want to emphasize that if you're struggling right now, please reach out and ask for help. Your life is so important and it's okay to ask for help. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you again next week.